If you have your Bibles, there we go. I invite you to take them and to turn with me this evening to Romans chapter 14. We come to the final week of our little mini-series on loving the brethren. Next week, we step back into 1 John, specifically into 1 John chapter 5, as we come to the close of the epistle of 1 John. We have been answering now for six weeks how to love the brethren, following a laying down of the foundation. First, speaking of the nature of love and how we express that love. Not that our love in and of itself is lesser or more toward any individual person, but rather that we do prioritize that love in a manner that is appropriate according to the circles of influence and of responsibility that the Lord has given to us. Specifically highlighting that while we recognize that we are called tells us in Galatians chapter 6 that that is especially to be or that we are to prioritize the household of faith. Then in the second message, we uh, took time understanding what love itself is from 1 Corinthians 13, uh, working on that definition of love. Then we moved on to these four principles that well establish what loving the brethren looks like, beginning in Romans chapter 12 with that general call, that principle of divine example whereby we are called to love one another by investing in one another, by serving one another, by uh, taking our place within the body as a member in particular, uh, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those that weep, blessing those that curse us even. Then we saw the principle of need from James chapter 2. That if we see our brother and he does not have those things that are necessary to meet his daily needs and we say unto him, go in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding we do not give him those things that are needful for the body, how can we say that we have this love, this trust, this faith in God's call for us to love the brethren? And then last time we were together, we talked about the principle of truth from Ephesians chapter 2 recognizing the need one among another to speak the truth in love and contemplating the implications of that command. And this week we come to the final, and in some senses we might say the most difficult of the principles, the principle that we call the weaker brethren principle. Now it's worth noting as we dig into this that we spent something like two months on Tuesdays talking about the weaker brethren principle last year. It's not a topic which is simple. It's not a topic which is easy, not easy to express, not easy necessarily even in our lives to implement. And the reason why is because interaction with people is not simple, nor is it easy. People are complicated. People are difficult. But I say this at the outset. If you have been listening to and applying as the Holy Spirit has guided and led in your heart and life, the principles that we've talked about already, these principles from Romans 12 and James 2 and Ephesians 2. Well, while the weaker brethren principle isn't necessarily going to be easier, it is a natural extension of those things that we have learned already. If you believe what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 as it relates to what love is, If you have presented your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, as your reasonable service, as Romans chapter 12 exhorts us, if you are indeed one who recognizes yourself as dead in Christ 
dead with Christ and alive in Christ so that you have no rights of your own, but that you are risen with Christ and raised to walk in that newness of life, then there is nothing that I say this evening that is going to necessarily surprise you or drift outside of the umbrella of the principles that we've already laid out. It's only going to stretch that concept to the furthest reaches of our hearts and challenge the deepest vestiges of our pride and our selfishness and our feelings of personal entitlement. And the essence of what we're going to talk about this evening is this. The laws of God are written into his creation. And as such, we have been endowed with certain rights. Those rights have been well recognized in Western society, drawn from a biblical worldview to be life, liberty, property. I have a natural human dignity by virtue of the image of God in me, so that no man has the right to take my life unless I forfeit the right by my actions as determined by a God-ordained civil authority. I have the right to live according to the dictates of my own conscience in liberty within the scope of God's design for humanity. And I have the right to rest secure in those possessions which I have through honest labor or natural inheritance gained throughout my days. But just because God has written into his creation this law, and it's identified by us through the word of God, does not mean that this is God's highest law. Indeed, all throughout the Bible, we find that there are laws by which we operate in truth and in honesty, but which are still subject to higher laws. So that we can safely say that within God's designed laws of personal liberty, the law of human dignity actually stands above that law of personal liberty. My right to act according to the dictates of my own conscience does not extend to a place where my personal liberty overrides another person's human dignity. And that's quite natural, right? We understand that to be so. That my personal liberty does not have the right to trounce somebody else's human dignity. And we see this reflected throughout laws from time immemorial. The laws of Hammurabi, the first, the, the, the first of those, those encoded laws. The law of Moses reflects this as well. The laws historically of, West, of the Western world reflect this. Most of which today, of course, have been utterly perverted. For as we know, there's very little justice. There's very little uh, um, uh, clarity of law left in Western society. But of which, if you study the history of laws in the West, you'll find that those things are indeed true. And the same can be said about, <coughs> excuse me, whole categories of laws themselves. That the law of personal rights or the law of personal liberties is not a law which stands atop other laws. And the Bible makes it very clear which law it is. The law that God has instituted in the heavenlies that God puts above all other laws. We studied it in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Divine love is, in fact, the highest law. Hence the reason for the two great commandments, identified throughout the Jewish law and Jewish history, but reiterated and codified in the teachings of Jesus Christ himself, that the two great commandments are, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might, 
and love thy neighbor as thyself. Because if we are doing those two things, then every other law that is built into creation will also be done. If you are loving the Lord your God with all, the, all your heart, soul, and might, and you are loving your neighbor as yourself, you will identify life, liberty, and property as natural. Those things, you will not encroach upon those things in someone else's purview because you are respecting God's laws and you are respecting your neighbor. You are loving them as you ought. And this is the foundation that I want to lay as we step into the weaker brethren principle this evening to state in no uncertain terms that your liberties are not the highest law. Love is the highest law, and love as a law is higher than the law of liberty. Your liberties do not trounce your responsibility to love. In fact, love is a higher responsibility than liberties. In other words, the law of liberties, your personal liberties, is subject to the law of Christian love. And I say this, in order that we might establish the proper mindset as we step into the commands that we are going to consider in Romans chapter 14. And my plan this evening is to do very similar to what I did in Romans 12, which is simply walk through the chapter. And in that I'm walking through the chapter, it will not be the most comprehensive lesson on Romans 14 you have ever received, because we're going to get through the entire chapter, plus just the first three verses of Romans 15 as well. But it will lay out the general principle that we're talking about this evening. And of course, if you have questions, I encourage you to see me and we'll hammer out the details in another forum. So in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, Paul begins his exhortation here saying this, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. We begin with labeling a subset of the believers within the church, and they are labeled as weak in the faith. Now we first make note that the topic of this chapter will be the nature of Christian liberty as it relates to the way that we apply doctrine to our lives. We are not talking about doctrinal disagreements per se. We're not talking about those things uh, that, that are, are fundamental disagreements in the scripture. What we're talking about is how we apply those doctrines to our lives. Things such as separation from the world, sanctification in Christ, holiness, testimony. To apply the manner in which we live our lives under doctrine is what we're talking about this evening. We're not talking about actual fundamental disagreements about what the Bible says it's about how that, what the Bible says applies to our lives. And immediately we need to make a distinction as to what weaker means. Those that are weak in faith. What does it mean, those that are weak in faith? Well, this does not mean that their faith is somehow intrinsically inferior, as we might consider the word weak in our culture. Weak is not a word that, we, um, uh, that has a, a positive connotation in our culture. If you're talking about a person, not positive. If you're talking about a thing, not positive. Weak is not a good thing within our culture. But the idea here of weak is not the concept of inferior. 
It's very similar to the way that Peter's, in fact, the same Greek word that Peter used to designate wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 as the weaker vessel. You perhaps recall that context where Peter calls the wife the weaker vessel. And this is not an indication in that context either of inferiority. It's not even a connotation of deficiency, but only of different character that is not designed to be, at least in the case of women, women, as we talked about on Tuesday nights, the leader and the provider. God has chosen something different for women. He has designed them unto a different end for a different role. He has chosen them unto that role of submission, unto that role of helpmeet, a role which is certainly no less important than the man's role, different than the man's role, not inferior, not deficient, just different. A woman is not inferior to a man. A woman is not deficient in relation to the whole of the human experience. She has some weaknesses where men have strengths and and she has some strengths where men have weaknesses. So you could call those weaknesses deficiencies, but only to the extent that God has not designed her to excel in those areas that he has designed for a man. That's the first Peter 3, 7 idea of the wife as the weaker vessel. She has placed herself into this position of submission. She has aligned herself with the design of God and in doing so has, in that sense, made herself the weaker vessel. Not inferior, not deficient, but designed to be the submissive party in a relationship and in society. In a military, in a military context, we would say that not everyone can be the general. If everybody in the military is the general, then there's no one to, for the general to tell what to do. Not even everyone is designed to be an officer. If everyone were officers, there would be no one to do the work. You have the enlisted men, then you have the officers, and as those officers arise in rank, there's fewer and fewer of them because you need fewer and fewer of them. Some men are not cut out for those positions. Others are, and that's okay. Happy is the man who knows his role in any given situation. And so as we think about this idea of the weak in faith here, it is not an inferior faith, not even necessarily a deficient faith, although unlike the example of wives, where a wife steps into this position of helpmeet, into this position of submission, into this position of supporter knowingly, and that is her design and her role, It's not necessarily the case that a person who is designated weak in faith will necessarily always stay in that place. A person might throughout the course of time in various phases of their life transition their understanding of their passages of scripture or or add new experiences to life or or, um, even step into a place, a new context of life whereby they will change the manner of their expressions of faith so that where we would have originally called them a weaker brethren in the faith, at some point they may not be anymore. They may fully invest into or live into the liberties that Christ has purchased for them. So it's, but, but, but that being said, it's not an inferior faith. It's not a deficient faith. It is, however, a different faith. It has different sensibilities, different priorities, and a different perspective. So we're talking about a certain subset of people that have a a, a type of faith whereby they are not comfortable living in the fullness of the liberties that Jesus Christ has purchased for them. And different is not wrong by default. One last note before we continue. Notice here, and you will see this throughout Romans 4, 
14, as well as in the corresponding teaching in, in 1 Corinthians 8, that Paul does not put the responsibility of this relationship upon those that are weak in faith. He puts the responsibility upon those who, as Romans uh, um, 15 will say, those who are strong in faith. That those who understand and willingly live in the liberties that Jesus Christ has purchased for them have the responsibility to care for the conscience of those who do not live in those liberties. So that as we consider the weaker brethren principle, there are some in this room who might be in that strong in faith position and others in this room who might be in that weak in faith position. Again, we are not talking about superiority and inferiority. We are talking about different choices. We are talking about a different character to their faith. We are talking about different consciences who are compelled unto different things. But it, is, it, it, it goes without without controversy, that those who live in their liberties and see their liberties and believe that they are living in their liberties and so extend to more liberty in how they apply the doctrines of the faith to their lives are responsible to care for the consciences of those who do not. And that is the essence of the weaker brethren principle. And with that established, let's then continue through the text. Uh, beginning back in verse 1, verses 1 through 6, the Bible says this, Him that is weak in faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth eateth to the Lord, for he that giveth thank, uh, for he giveth thanks to God, or giveth God thanks. Excuse me. And he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. So the faith scenario within which we step is one of eating meat versus eating effectively what we'd call today vegetarian. Now this is not necessarily a, a, a broad and lively debate in our circles today. However, I can remember when I was growing up, an evangelist coming to my church and advocating very strongly for what was called at the time the Daniel diet, which was, like Daniel and his companions, eating only pulse and water, right? And so this is something that does connect itself to our circles, even uh, at least in the last 20 years or so, and so I'd imagine it's probably still floating around somewhere. I haven't run across it in a little while, but it is not to say that, that these things are not still out there. So, so perhaps we can connect very clearly to what Paul is saying here. And the fact is that there are legitimate reasons and also what we might consider illegitimate reasons why a person might feel as though they could or could not in good conscience eat meat. And this is exactly what Paul is saying here. He calls upon the church to receive those that are weak in faith. And in this scenario, he makes it very clear that the one who he says is weak in faith is the one who refuses to eat meat. That the person who is eating only herbs, only vegetables, is the weaker brethren in this context. So once again, 
Paul is, is very clearly here not saying that this person is somehow deficient or inferior. As a matter of fact, that's exactly the opposite. But what he is saying is that he is restricting what is otherwise his liberty, making it very clear that we have the liberty in Christ to eat meat. But he is restricting what would otherwise be his liberty, and he is restricting that liberty for one reason or another. And so he calls upon the church to receive those that are weak in faith. And in this scenario, he says, one believes he may eat all things, the other eats only herbs. And and then, as I said, Paul is careful to designate the one eating only herbs as the weak in faith. The weaker brethren are those who have limited what God has allowed for some reason. And maybe it's a firm conviction based upon some experience or determination Maybe it's because they simply don't fully understand their liberty, but for whatever reason, it is not just a choice that they've made, but they have bound their conscience. Their faith is bound to this determination, this belief that they should not eat meat. Either way, what Paul gives is this exhortation, that the man who eats meat should not despise That word not necessarily being like we would use the word despise today. Oftentimes when we use the word despise, uh, it it is connected to some degree of emotion, right? The idea that you truly have a visceral, emotional, negative reaction to something. I despise that thing. And if we use that word despise, it it oftentimes uh, takes takes the word hate and adds another layer of, uh, of awfulness to the word hate as you think of despising something. But that's not how the word despise is used in our King James Bible. In the King James Bible, this idea here is to think little of or to disesteem. So it's to place something lower, to, to, um, to look down upon, is the idea here of the word to despise. Thus, Paul is saying here that the man who eats this meat, the man who understands his liberty and is glad to live in the liberty that Christ has purchased for him, and so he's eating that delicious meat, should not look down upon the person who has a, a, a conscience issue with eating meat. Should not see him looking upon him with condescension and saying, well, this person just doesn't understand their liberties. This person just doesn't understand the Bible. This person just doesn't get it. Does he not understand that he can eat it? Why? Why, why is his conscience so sensitive? Is he a legalist? You know, whatever it might be, right? Don't despise the one who doesn't eat meat when his, his faith, his conscience, truly and honestly compels him unto that conviction. And Paul doesn't just give this exhortation one way, he gives it both ways. He says, likewise, let not him which eateth judge him, oh, excuse me, let not him which eateth not Judge him that eateth. The man who believes before the Lord that he should not eat meat, and he has his reasons, and his faith is compelled unto this end, and his conscience will not let him eat meat, and he might even be able to open to chapter and verse and say, these are the motivations that I have in my heart and in my life by which I am convinced that I ought not be eating meat. I should only eat herbs. Paul says, let not that man who does not eat judge the man who is eating. Judge the man who has chosen to live within his liberties, feeling as though they are somehow inherently better Christians for the choices that they have made. Well, don't those people understand separation? Don't those people understand that the meat they're eating, if we, if we connect this with, say, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, that the meat they're eating has been offered to idols? 
Do they not understand what the, the, the associations they have simply by putting that meat in their mouth? Do they not understand what Daniel exhibited? Do they not understand what, what, what we see back in the Garden of Eden before the flood? Don't have a judgmental spirit in one's heart toward those that are living in their liberties. And so there's a responsibility that rests upon both parties here. Upon the strong in faith, it is their responsibility not to disesteem or to look down upon those who have bound their conscience to some restrictions of their liberties. And to those that have bound their conscience to some restrictions of their liberties, it is their responsibility not to judge those who have not bound their conscience to restriction of their liberties. Now, once again, within this interaction, we are not talking about sin. We're not saying that a person who is living in open and unrepentant sin, you just have to say, well... Their conscience allows them to do that. No, 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 that, that, that's not what we're talking about this evening. We are talking about issues of liberty. And granted, the church does not agree about what all those issues of liberty are. That's another discussion for another day. That's another argument. That's another debate. That's, that, that's, a whole nother, that's a whole nother can of worms. We're not going to get into that. We're just going to rest in this idea that we are talking about issues of liberty and we'll let the rest sort itself out in other forums. And the reason why Paul says, strong in faith, don't despise the weak. Weak in faith, don't judge the strong, is because, he says, God hath received him. If both men are right in spirit, which is what we're talking about this evening, if both men love God and desire God's best for them, which is what we're talking about this evening, if both men have genuine compulsions in their conscience unto the direction that they have gone, they're not pretending. They're not trying to get away with stuff. They're not, they're not continuing in sin that grace may abound, but these are genuine believers who love the Lord, who uh, uh, understand the word of God, who believe the word of God, but have a genuine disagreement about how to apply the principles to their daily lives. God has received both of them. And if both men as unto the Lord are living in good conscience, God has received them. And so Paul sets up an important principle here. You and I are both servants of God, Christian. You are not my servant. I'm not your servant. We talked about this a little bit this morning as well in a very different context. We do not answer to each other. We answer to our master, who is God. You will rise and fall before your master and I will rise and fall before mine. And if you are convinced in your heart that you can live in the liberties uh, that, that God has given to you, then God be praised. You'll answer to him for that, not to me. And if I am convinced in my heart that I must bind myself and refuse some liberties in good conscience before God, well, God be praised. I'll answer to God for that. I don't answer to you and you won't answer to me. So that I can say with confidence, not in jest, not in deceit, not in selfishness, not in guile, but if I can say in confidence that when I stand before the Lord, I believe he will be pleased with the thing that I am doing and the choice that I have made, then praise to God, that's good enough. And this is the standard by which we operate. That if I cannot point to chapter and verse on something that someone is doing, but I might be concerned that they may be overextending their liberties. Or I can't point to chapter and verse, but I might be concerned that someone is uh, binding themselves to a set of standards that is very, very tight and that they, they maybe don't understand their liberties. But if I can sit across from that person and I ask them this question, 
Can you, in good conscience, look me in the eye and tell me that before God, when you stand before the holy, almighty God, you can answer properly for the thing that you are doing? Do you believe with all of your heart that you can do that? If a fellow believer looks at me and says, I believe with all my heart I can do that, that's enough for me. Then I'm okay. Then you will stand before God one day and you will answer for that thing. And if you can answer, if you believe you can answer, doesn't mean you won't be mistaken on that day. But if you believe you can answer for it, then it's, it's not my problem. It's out of my hands. Again, we're not talking about blatant, unrepentant sin here. We're talking about issues of conscience, issues of liberty. And Paul speaks to the same principle as it relates to the regarding of days. Some regard a certain day as important. Others do not. We see that principle uh, here. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. The man that regards the day like we do, we regard Sunday as a special day. Some people regard Sunday as more of a special day in this church than others do. Some people will say, well, we're not going to do any work on Sunday. So Sunday is a day of rest. So you go to church and you go home and you, you don't do any work. And, and then you, you go back to church in the evening. Uh, some will not go out to eat on Sundays because they'll regard that that's, uh, that's compelling other people to work on Sundays, right? Because that's commerce. Or they won't go shopping on Sundays. Other people say, you know what? The unbelieving world's going to do what the unbelieving world's going to do. I'm going to go out to eat. Some regard the day more to the Lord. Some regard the day less to the Lord. Some don't regard the day at all. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. The man that regards the day, as long as he regards it unto the Lord. The man that regards not the day, as long as he regards it not as unto the Lord. He that eateth, as long as he eateth unto the Lord. He that eateth not, as long as he does not eat unto the Lord. As long as in every single case we are giving God thanks as unto the Lord. You say, well, pastor, I don't understand. How can a person do that or not do that as unto the Lord? Well, that's the point, right? I, we're fully persuaded in our own minds, so you're not necessarily going to understand what the other person thinks because you are fully persuaded. And thank God you're fully persuaded in your own mind of something. You don't have to be guilty about that. You don't have to be frustrated about that. You are fully persuaded in your mind. And that is a wonderful thing, but that's you. And if another is fully persuaded in their mind of another conviction, they'll answer to God for that. And that's okay. And as I just said, as I said previously, be careful that we're not talking about here the Romans 6 idea, right? Paul's already taught Romans 6. We're on Romans 14 now. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? This is not, and I, I pray that nobody under the sound of my voice is hearing this as a, oh good, I can now sin, and nobody can say anything about it. That's not what we're talking about this evening. Okay, we continue. Verses 7 through 12. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall stand before, we shall all stand before the judgment. 
seed of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. See, I don't need to judge you. God will judge you. I just need to love you. I don't need to set you at naught. If anyone's going to be setting you at naught, God can set you at naught. I just need to love you. God will be your judge. You will not give an account to me. I will not give an account to you of your actions or your intentions on the day of judgment. So instead, we simply ask that question. Do you honestly believe in all good conscience that your actions and decisions in any given area of life are right before God so that when you stand before him, you will be able to answer for that choice? Are you truly and fully persuaded in your own mind of that thing? And if you say yes, then God be praised. I commend you to God. I'm going to love you. And that's the weaker brethren principle. Now, two caveats before we move on both of which are somewhat loaded ideas that we are not going to talk about, but that are worthy of talking about or thinking through at least at some point. If there is an an unambiguous or a consensus interpretation of God's word, which is being breached by someone who insists that they are right nonetheless, while it is not my place to judge, such a circumstance does justify further inquiry and discussion. If there is someone who is truly walking completely counter to everything that we understand, the orthodox teaching of the faith to believe, and yet they say they're doing it in good conscience, and you're wrestling about whether or not this is a liberty issue or a sin issue, you should, you should wrestle and get to the bottom of that, for their sake as well as for your own. And then second, we also see, as we talked about this evening from 1 Corinthians 11, as we observe the Lord's table, that not only do we see direct commands that Paul gave to the churches, but that there were also things that Paul told to the churches that fell under the category or the classification of ordinance or tradition. These are things that, while not explicitly commanded that they had to be done, and we spent time on Tuesday recognizing from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 16, Paul gives this instruction about head coverings, and then he says at the end of that instruction, but if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, no, not the churches of God, right? Recognizing that this is not an issue to bring contention into the church over. It's a tradition. It is not an indelible command. And so we recognize that there are those things in the church, yet we also see through the example of that passage that it is not wrong for a corporate body of believers, say a church, to also set a standard that they believe the word of God reflects and to ask those that would be in fellowship with that corporate body when in that corporate body to conform themselves to said standard. And you may say, well, pastor, here's the problem. I have my liberty and I want to live in my liberty or uh, whatever it might be. Yes, but if you're in a corporate group of people, then there is also a corporate standard and that's okay. So that there can be lively uh, debates and discussions about what that corporate standard ought to look like. But as we continue through the text, we'll see it is certainly not an appropriate thing for us to breach those standards simply to make a point. And of course, that certainly wouldn't be loving the brethren. So we hasten on. Verses uh, 13 through 18. Paul continues. He says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. 
But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. So the first exhortation, let us not judge one another anymore in the manner in which Paul has just described. And in our age, the church has not done good at that command. Not our church per se, directly, but the church has not done very good at that. Let, let us not judge us anymore. But then Paul says, judge this rather. So don't judge one another anymore on these ideas of liberty, but rather judge this. So there's something that we ought to judge in ourselves. And for the record, the church has done an even worse job at the second command than we've done at the first command. And what is that second command? What ought we to judge of ourselves? What we ought to judge of ourselves is that none of us put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in our brother's way. Not just that I am not going to judge you for your liberties, not just that I'm not going to despise you, belittle you, think little or condescend to you because of your restrictions. But I am actually, and this is again, no, we're falling back upon Paul instructing the strong in faith here, that, as, that those strong in faith, those who live in their liberty, he says it is your responsibility to make sure that you are not putting a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in your brother's way. And a part of this reception to receive the weak in faith is to make sure that we are not compelling them to extend their actions beyond their conscience. May I say that again? The strong in faith are being commanded here that they do, would not compel the weak in faith to extend their actions beyond their conscience. If my brother is grieved that I eat meat and I eat that meat in his presence, which, by the way, is perfectly within my liberty to do, to eat meat. But if it genuinely grieves his conscience, then through my action of eating meat, though it is my liberty to do, it fails the standard of the higher law, the law that is above liberty, the law that liberty is subject to, it fails the law of, of charity. It falls short of charity. I am no longer being charitable toward my brother. So while I am living in my liberty, and so I say it's not a sin to eat meat, it is absolutely a sin to eat that meat if it is outside of charity. Not because I'm eating the meat, but because I am not being charitable. So through the action of eating meat, I am not being sinful. The action of eating meat but I have elevated my liberty, my rights, 
above the law of charity, above the conscience of my brother. And so I am breaching the essential commandment to love the brethren. And Paul says this. He says, don't let your good be evil spoken of. Don't let the good thing that you enjoy, this eating of meat, the liberty that you have in Christ, to become a blight, to be, an evil, to be something that is evil spoken of of others because of the manner in which you are living out your liberty. And that's a pretty common thing, isn't it? That the manner in which we live out our liberty or the manner in which we live out the restrictions of our liberty makes our good be evil spoken of. It makes us odious in the eyes of others. It makes us unbecoming to those who are watching us because of the manner in which we are living out or refusing to live out our liberties. Don't allow your actions to become a stain on the heart of a manner that is fundamentally uncharitable. It's thus wholly inconsistent with Christ. Paul says the reason why is because the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink. Christian, the kingdom of God is not in your choice of standards or liberties. The kingdom of God is righteousness peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And if righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost is these liberties, or if it is these restrictions, God has received you. Live in it. Let every man be persuaded in his own mind. The man who serves God in righteousness, peace, and joy is acceptable, and we should not judge him, and we should not despise him. So Paul exhorts at the end of the chapter, verses 19 through 23, let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man whom eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he who, can, who condemneth not himself in that thing which he, that would be God, alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now the point is this. As it relates to our interactions one with another, our goal is twofold. First, pursue those things which make for peace. Do not cause contention and dissension in the church over liberties. Second, pursue those things which will build one another up in their faith. Now, last week we talked about truth. So most certainly truth is one of those things that build one another up, but not truth in anger, not truth in condescension, not truth in judgment. The truth, as we said it last week, in Love. If I'm doing something that you disagree with and believe that I should probably rethink it as it relates to my relationship with God, as it relates to how I dispose myself toward the world that is around me or whatever it might be, then love me enough to tell me. But also love me enough not to judge me if I disagree with you. And love the church enough not to cause an issue in the church over it. 
In this way, we build one another up rather than destroy one another. I don't come to you and guilt you and shame you and make you feel awful until you conform to my way of thinking. There is nothing in that that is of Christ. Instead, I inform you. I advocate for my position of which I am wholly convinced or else I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it, right? And then I commend you to God and I love you And we move forward together. And if I'm the weaker brethren in that instance, then I expect that when you confront me on that thing, if I don't budge, that you are going to honor my weaker conscience. And if I'm the stronger brethren in that instance, and I go to someone and I I, I give my concerns about their weak faith and their binding of their liberties, and they choose not to budge and they say, no, I'm going to stick with where I'm at, then it's my job to accommodate that weakness as the stronger in faith. Again, not inferior, superior. As the one who is living in his liberties, it is my privilege to care for the conscience of my brother or sister in Christ. It's my privilege because that's love. Now, Remember at this point again that the primary exhortation is unto those who are strong in the faith, not the weak in faith, to bear the burdens of those who are weak. And we see Paul come back to this idea in the second half of verse 20 to the end of the chapter. He says, All things are indeed pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. And this is very interesting, isn't it? Paul just said that something which is pure before God can still work evil. Now I'm going to skip to verse 23 to help us understand this concept. Then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about verses 21 and 22. We already read verse 23. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In that Jesus has taken all of our sins on the cross, and in that doing so, Jesus fulfilled the law, right? He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled every demand of the law so that as I stand before God in Christ, I stand before him holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, having no unrighteousness as it pertains to the law, because all of that unrighteousness was poured out on Jesus Christ, was born by Jesus Christ, the wrath of God poured out, and he took that on the cross for me. And Paul says, in that, in that essence, because of that, all things on this earth are in and of themselves pure, providing that they accomplish one condition. That condition being that that thing can be done in faith before God. If it can be done in faith, then it is pure. Now, I can't breach any of the Ten Commandments in faith, so none of those things are pure, Because it cannot be done in faith. But there are many things that, though they are pure, yet for one reason or another, I personally cannot in faith do them myself. Though something might be okay to do, as we we think of standards, uh, separation, holiness, whatever the case may be, though it might be okay to do, though it might be okay to eat meat for one reason or another, my conscience before God will not allow me, I am convinced in my conscience that I cannot Eating meat is not unpure. But if a man whose conscience before God forbids him to eat meat, 
and then he does in fact eat meat, think through this with me. If a man whose conscience says you should not before God eat meat, if that man eats meat, at the moment that he is eating that meat, is he doing so in faith? He is not. What is in his heart in that moment is not faith. It is perhaps rebellion. It is perhaps um, guilt. It is perhaps shame. There is something compelling him to eat that meat, but his conscience is saying don't do it, which means it is certainly not faith that is compelling him. And if it's not of faith, then it is sin, Christian. It doesn't matter what it is. If you cannot do it in faith, then, and you do it anyway, it is sin to you. Now, I might be able to do that very same thing in faith, so it's not sin to me, but it, can be, it will be sin to you if you cannot do it in faith because if you are not doing it in faith, then there is something else in your heart. Again, rebellion, guilt, shame, some other motivation that is not right before God. And since these things cannot please God because they are not of faith, that man enters into sin in eating meat not because the meat is sinful, but because the heart with which he is eating it is in sin. Okay, back to verses 21 and 22. He says, It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in the thing which he alloweth. Notice the twofold thought process that Paul goes through here. First, he says, far better for me as one who understands my liberty, far better for, for any of you who are living in your liberty to never exercise that liberty again for the rest of your life. And in this case, of course, the example is to eat flesh or to drink wine. If it would, would cause the conscience of your brother to be offended or to stumble, far better to never do that thing than to cause a brother to stumble. Far better in any breach of conscience of a brother. Far better to, to never do that thing than to breach the conscience of a brother, than to cause him deep trouble in his spirit, to cause him through your example or through your pressure to fall into a place of living outside of faith. Never pressure a Christian into some action or decision which breaches their, their, their conscience on the argument that, look, it isn't sin. Don't do that. Never do that. It will be to them if they cannot do that thing in faith, Christian. If they're doing it for you, if they're doing it for acceptance, if they're doing it out of guilt or out of shame for any other reason than that they believe they can and should before God, then you are not acting charitably towards your brother. And the law of charity is higher than the law of your personal liberties. First John makes that abundantly clear. Romans 12 made that clear. Romans 14 here makes that clear. We'll see in a moment. Romans 15 says it too. We also find it in 1 Corinthians 6. We find it in 1 Corinthians 8. But Paul does say one more thing here that our liberty-minded folk also need to know. If you are more liberty-minded and you say, wow, this is very restrictive, Pastor. Verse 22 is for you. Paul says, hast thou faith? 
speaking to those that believe they can eat meat. And notice what he says. Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that which he alloweth. You don't have to feel guilty that you regard the liberty of eating meat. Oh, well, my brother says it's sin. Now I feel guilty about doing it. You don't have to feel guilty about doing it. Praise God that you have your liberty. You're convinced of it before the Lord. You're convinced in your own mind and you can do that thing before God. That is wonderful. If God has allowed something and you know it, that is a wonderful thing. You don't have to stop doing it. Just do it charitably. If you can eat meat in front of your brother, if your brother says, hey, look, I don't eat meat I, 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 before the Lord, I don't eat meat. But if you want to, by all means, go ahead. He understands it's a liberty issue. He recognizes that he can't do it, but other people can. And he's confident before the Lord in that thing. Well, then praise the Lord. Go ahead and eat the meat in front of him. And if he can't do that, if that would harm his conscience, if that, if that would cause him to stumble, well, then just don't eat the meat around him. When you're with him, eat his herbs. When you go home, eat the meat. Be charitable towards your brother. Your brother is worth that. Peace, unity, and reconciliation in the church, edification in the church, are worth that. You setting aside your liberties for your brother. Just because people don't agree with your liberty doesn't mean you have to feel guilty about it, Christian. Happy is the man who does not rest under condemnation for the things which God has allowed. But just because you have your liberty doesn't mean that your liberty is above your love for the brethren. Now, I wish I could go to 1 Corinthians 8 and think through that example, because that's a whole other scenario of eating meat offered unto idols and how that plays out. But there isn't time. As we close tonight, however, I'd like us to go in our application to the first three verses of Romans chapter 15. In fact, Paul is, in, that, in, in a sense, applying here, so my application is his application, and we'll just leave it at that. In verses 1 through 3, Paul says this, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good and edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached them, thee, excuse me, fell on me. Paul says the strong ought to. It is right. It is good for the strong to bear the infirmities of the weak. Now that word infirmities in the Greek is found only here in the New Testament. We call that in theological circles a hapox legomenon. The only time a word is found. The only time a word is used. And the essence of that word is not, again, of infirmities here is not like illness, but the idea of a conviction or scruples or, or your conscience. Scruples is probably a good word for it. The strong in conscience ought to bear the conscience of the weak, ought to be sensitive to their scruples. Our mindset in the body above all ought to be that everything that we are doing, we are doing to build one another up. Not to serve ourselves, but to serve one another. Well, pastor, why would I possibly do that? Because you wouldn't be going to heaven if Christ didn't do it for you. Because you would be spending eternity in a sinner's hell if Christ wasn't willing to do it for you. So what kind of arrogant presumption is it that we would not be willing to do it for our brethren? How could we be so selfish and so arrogant that we would withhold from a brother in Christ what Christ has not withheld from us? That's why we should do it. 
Because Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of you fell on Christ. The reproaches of we who reproached Christ fell on him. Jesus bore my reproach. Jesus bore my infirmities. Jesus bore my insecurities. Jesus bore my sorrows. And if Jesus did it for me, then, well, 1 John 2, verse 10. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. If Jesus did it for me, then... 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Because Jesus did it for me, well, 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8 Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. Jesus did it for me, well, 1 John 4.20 If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And next week we'll consider 1 John 5 verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Four principles that compel us unto the answer to this question. How do we love the brethren? You love by divine example. You love by, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Him who thought himself, who was equal to God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Him who, as we ought, make ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. Second, how do we love the brethren? The principle of need. That if I have what I need and I have enough to meet the needs of another, that it is right, it is fitting, it is good, it is appropriate, it is expected that I would meet their need. Third, the principle of truth. That I am not loving my brethren by allowing them to rest in error. I am not loving my brethren by seeing them grope in darkness without stopping them. I am loving my brethren when I am telling them the truth in love. And what that means is edifying one another. And then finally this evening, the principle of the weaker brethren, that I elevate my love for my brother and his conscience above even my own personal liberties so that if it were necessary, I would never again live in my personal liberties if it might be that I might edify and build up a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And all of it comes down to that singular word that we saw in Romans chapter 12, that word that we considered uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 13 in the definition of love, and that word is selfless. Because that is what love is. When you're out of the way, then you'll be on the right track to living out the love that God has called us to. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.